0: .net Rocks episode 809 with guests Steve Smith, Kent Allstadt and Paul Carvalho. Recorded live Monday, September 24th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by franklins.net training developers to work smarter and now offering gesture pack A powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com And now, here are Carl and Richard.
1: Thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. We're here in Bulgaria. At DevReach, this is day two.
2: Second to last session. The show is almost over. Yes. And, yes, it is Friday. It is Friday. It's almost time for beer. Or rakia. Or rakia. Yeah. Or, or whatever your poor adult choice liquor is.
1: <laughs> All right, well, we're, he- we're here with an esteemed panel, and we're talking about web performance, so I'll start with Ken. Just introduce yourself, who you are, what do you do? Uh, my name is Kent Alsted. I'm uh, from Vancouver, British Columbia,
3: Canada. Um, I work for Strange Loop Networks. I'm the CTO of Strange Loop Networks, and our company's reason for existence is to speed up websites. So, uh, you know, this is something that is very dear to my heart and something that I have a fair amount of practical experience in.
0: Hi, my name is Steve Smith. I'm currently a executive vice president with Telerik in their services division. And in the, in the past, I've written some courses on using performance and scalability tools with Visual Studio for Pluralsight and consulted for clients on improving the scalability of their applications. Hi, I'm Paul
4: Carvalho from Canada, just outside of Toronto. And... Um,
2: <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> why what do you yeah, why do? Here? Draw a <laughs> blank. Yeah. Uh,
4: no, I am not a developer. I, uh, I'm a testing consultant, quality consultant,
1: and uh, I'm currently working for a company as a quality architect. So you get to see speed problems uh, go away, hopefully,
2: from, from slow it, to fast.
4: I make it as part of the picture.
2: Yeah. Yes. Look at, the so yeah, when I mean, looking at an overall test landscape, speed is only one piece of the puzzle. Yes.
0: Yeah. To be be fair, I think that's what Kent and I try and do as well. We don't try and make it get slower. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm curious. Do you ever have
3: performance as a requirement? That you, do you, as a tester, have you ever come to a project where they've said that our page load speed has to be on average X or Y? Like, do you have them, uh, you know, normally I see performance is if it, it never is stated. It's only when it's not there, everybody's upset. So, you know, but they just, so it's expected and it's really right. hard to deliver. But do they ever give you the actual, uh, requirements?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, just wondering. <laughs> No, it's a great yeah. point because I'm a, I'm a big fan of service-level agreements. and this is stuff I've have, had had to author over the years, and we want to set hard numbers around transactions will take no longer than 10 right. seconds and, and those sorts yeah. of things. Uh, I think the big challenge is that often we're making doing those negotiations at a business level and never actually talking to the developers, the testers, and the operators about, oh, by the way, you're committed to a 10-second transaction.
1: And uh, also load testing and speed testing, stress testing is different than in the wild where you really need some sort of telemetry to get real-time feedback.
3: Yeah, I think that uh, one of the strangest lessons for me over the last six years of doing performance is that it turns out that measuring performance is as difficult as getting performance. We, we have spent as much time on beacons, different types of testing technologies, different t- t- types of load testing technologies, and then collecting millions of rows of data, and then trying to figure out what it all means. And so it's, you could state your service level agreement, but does that, you know, is that doc complete? Is that doc ready? Like what, you know, what's the actual criteria for what you're going to measure, right? There's so many details that we found It that's, you know, not only is, Deciding that you know I want to fix this app, it's not performing uh, is a problem. But how do I measure it, and how do I even set up those service level agreements? What test do I use? That's also very difficult. So it's a
2: it's a very difficult space overall. But Kent, this is all fixed by the Web Timings class
0: in HTML5. <laughs> it's it's very much uh, affected by the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Because as soon as you start measuring performance, you're affecting it. Uh, and the more you
2: need to know, I've already been killed the by a uh, listeners about it. That. It's not Heisenberg; it's the observer effect. Right. Heisenberg was a different thing. Oh really? Yeah, Heisenberg says I can know the, the potential of an electron, but not its location, or one sure, or the other. Sure, sure. Right. Observer effect. I will. I will you will take watch it. It moves forth. away. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> to elaborate on the answer I gave earlier, when I look at a system or help people look at systems in different ways, part of the question of understanding performance objectives or goals or requirements is they know by look and feel it should be faster, but they can't quantify it. And so we use exploratory methods to examine potential risk areas within a system. And that's where it gets to what you were saying, setting up the experiments to gather the data and then looking at it and then saying, what do you feel? And then sort of collaboratively determining what those requirements could or should be within certain thresholds.
2: Now, as a tester, Paul, you're coming at this from the point of view of I'm working in a lab doing a series of tests. I mean I I know from my experience I, I think Kent's had a similar one that we're trying to do more and more instrumentation in the field all the time. Right. Like collecting every every client collect, is sending us back data on performance. Is that I mean, I don't know how you're working. I'm curious about that. Because I I mean I've done a lot of lab work too.
4: Right. I've been going sort of as I work with different clients, they have different needs. Mm-hmm. And um we're currently, for the client that I'm working with right now, we're currently setting up a lab and trying to make it more formal. Generally, it starts off with, and what I like from the tester perspective, the outside-in approach, is I'm focused on that end-user perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, when we deliver this solution, the customer doesn't care what the technology is underneath. They want, does it solve their problem? So I do actually like Working from the outside in approach. And then when I start working with devs, it's like, okay, this area, how can we start to take a look at this? You know, I've got a form here with too much client side validation. We need to minimize that to streamline the page download times. You know, what sort of technologies do we have available to help us re architect this particular? Is there a predefined
1: form? pecking order of things that you check for um, when you're looking for bottlenecks? So,
4: I start with a risk-based approach, and uh, there's some general risk criteria that I start off with looking at things like, uh, what are the upstream and downstream uh, dependencies? Uh, If something is a third-party tool, or if it's new to the system, If there's no prior history, that's where I might tend to focus on certain things. When it comes to finding relationships under the hood, then I sort of partner with a DBA or I partner with a senior dev person and say, this is kind of what we're looking for. And we set the direction and we just sort of meander in an exploratory way with that goal in mind.
0: Steve, what about you? Uh, Well, in terms of what's the first thing I look for, it's almost always going to be the database or any other out-of-process call. Because those tend to be the things that are the slowest in in the applications I work with, which tend to be web apps. But I also wanted to, when we were talking about service level agreements, uh, mention that it's often very hard to get the enough information to define what the service level is. You know, uh, you know, the, the canonical example is that you just have the user saying it has to be fast. Right. Okay. Right. Great. Um, but you you can go beyond that. You can say I need so many transactions per second, or each transaction must take less than so many seconds. Yeah. Um, but but even with that, you know, as a developer, I know I can game that easily because I can just you know say, well, it does that when there's one user. Right. Or it does that as long as I have ten computers behind it and I max out all their CPUs. Sure. So you, know, you also have to cover like what are my resource constraints? What's the total load of the system? Yeah. How many records are in the database at this time? Because the you know the performance of the system is going to vary over time as well.
3: You're getting right to my point that the measurement of the system is often as complex as fixing the problem. Um, I approach it differently because often I, I'm, I've been, because I'm wrong so often, I start with normally a waterfall measurement. The sign of a very smart engineer. Yeah. Well, well I, I mean, I just, you know, performance is about measurement first, mm-hmm. understanding the bottleneck and, our experience when i look at it, so a waterfall from a, a waterfall is essentially a, a look at uh what each network transaction is for a web page and how long it takes invariably most big applications once they get into the field and are being used um i find that there's an 80 20 rule normally 20% of the time is somehow rendering the html and 80% of the time is getting all the resources from the various locations and, you know, having the page finish rendering. Now, I know that there's a database problem that often gets caught by the devs before it even gets out there because it's, you know, sure. it, it never really made it. But now we're in the field and the CTO or the CEO of who, you know, whatever your big customer is looking at the page and he's saying it's slow. So you start doing the test and you start by creating a waterfall and looking at it. And then you start looking at what are the most common culprits? Well, The biggest problem in web performance today, undeniably, is third-party content. And, you know, that people got ads that, where they, the way ad servers work is they, you know, there's a bunch of JavaScript, and they Mm. say, hey, I want to fill an ad, and they go out, and they say, you know, they go to the first ad server, do you want to fill this ad, and they take the information from the client, and they decide, oh, no, I don't want to fill an ad, and they go to the next one, and you, you, you get a, imagine that the same page will go, first hit, you look at it, it has... 30 round trips. It has HTML and 29 resources. Mm-hmm. You hit the very same page again, uh, with a different user, with a different, um, demographic mm-hmm. and in a, in a different location, in a different part of the world, and you get 250 requests. Mm-hmm. And the, and the page is four seconds, one time, the exact same page on the exact same website with the exact same code. So we found invariably that controlling those third parties, um, uh, tag management is the you know sort of the field of correcting that problem and there's many companies that address that Google just released tag manager uh, you know to try to help with their services three days ago which is you know interesting to look at uh, bright tag or tagman or other companies that attempt to address this in various ways some people try to fix all the advertising uh, firms out there in the ad services which seems like a
1: Pretty long job, like it's yeah. a you know big cycle, and there's so a no real easy test is turn all the third party ad stuff off, off and, and see what the page and see what the page right, and, and and often you get a very
3: different, very different picture, but. Surely the first thing to do is to start with that waterfall and find out. I mean, and, and, you know, if it, you do have a database problem, you're going to see a waterfall where if the page takes 10 seconds, it takes eight seconds to get the HTML back and, you know, two seconds to get the rest of the resources. And you know, oh, I got to go. Now I can actually go to the developers and they can do something about it. But if I do the same thing and it's, uh, you know, 0.5 seconds to get the HTML back, which is often the case, and the rest of it is, you know, getting the resources and rendering them. You could go to the devs all day long, and they could correct as many database queries as they want, and it wouldn't help.
1: You Can know, I in the long ask run. you to roll back a minute and yep. just sort of define waterfall, which you're talking a lot okay. about in this context?
3: Yeah. A, a, a waterfall uh, is a pictorial de- uh, depiction of the rendering of a web page. Okay. Uh, where it, imagine it starts with the, you know, the first row would be calling for the HTML. Mm-hmm. And normally each row, uh, tools that do this are like web page test or the built in, uh, uh, built in tools in in all the browsers okay. now have the sort of developer, uh, versions. And they usually say a network graph. You click, click on the network, you know, panel in e- any one of those tools normally built into the browser, uh, it kind of shows you, here's the HTML, then I got these JavaScripts, and it kind of shows you uh, in a sort of a nice, time graph you know, yeah. where things are taking, how long they're taking. You can only go into every request and see, well, how much time was DNS lookup? How much time was content download? And so you can try to figure out, is my problem bandwidth? Is my problem DNS? Is my, and you can
2: start to assess what to do. Well, and the classic one is someone's dropped Google Analytics into the header, and you see this big bonk on the graph, where the page comes down, and maybe one CSS came down right away, and then there's this long line. Well, Google Analytics took its time, right. and then the rest of the page could load. But of course, I mean that's a digital depiction of the rendering. What the user saw was I hit the page, and nothing came up
1: right. for Correct. a long
2: time. And, and then it all dropped in.
1: Would it be wise to put that in the footer
2: yeah. perhaps? Or does it load it asynchronously after the page is rendered? Yeah. I mean that's yeah. the whole thing. But you know, the marketing guy who wanted Google Analytics didn't know any of that. He just dropped it in the first place, he could put it in, it didn't crash the page.
1: Right. So it's not going to matter to Google Analytics if you put it in the footer. No. Yeah. Well, that there's
3: a there's a subtle detail there. Uh, unfortunately, people click away from pages. And yeah. the, the longer the right. later in the page rendering cycle you put you know, data capturing mechanisms like that—the mm. more likely you are uh, to not capture beacons or not right. get the information. Mm. And from your ad server background, you have probably—you know see sure. always a di- there's a discrepancy between impressions and you know what yes. happens. And for the same reason, right?
0: But but if you are just trying to track analytics and and they click away before they load the analytics, you probably didn't want to count them as a real visitor anyway. Yeah. So that, the but, consequence yeah. is very low there. But right? yeah, like minimal. One of the reasons why my background, uh, and the thing I look for first is, is not the, the waterfall is because a lot of my experience with performance tuning was on the ad server side where I only have one request and that's to get that ad back as fast as possible. So you're basically the guilty party? Yeah, here. we blame yeah, <laughs> you for, for a Just while. One so, so like 10 years ago when I first started doing ad software, we did do stuff with document.write. And when you run document.write on the page, everything comes to a screeching halt while you render that and then, you know, the, the DOM readjusts itself and then JavaScript continues. The, these days, most ad servers don't do that and they, they do wait. Like essentially, you know, they don't necessarily use jQuery, but they essentially operate on the same uh, way as a, an asynchronous call on yeah. load or on ready. Um, so, so when the document has loaded, the page is probably already rendered and then the ads pop in. And if you are looking at a waterfall and you see that, and all you look at is the total time that total time might be you know whatever let's say five seconds but the page might have rendered to the user with all the stuff they care about not the ads in two seconds so it's another SLA thing where you might want to say is the page usable don't worry about the ads right yeah
3: that's in in the web timing spec on IE they have uh, first paint is a measurement you can use which Mm is uh, was and and I think it's interactive or document interactive um, Mm -hmm. so you can you can use that we we actually, you know, you talk about measurements, we, in web test, which is another tool that does waterfalls and tests, you know, automates browsers and does this sort of stuff, they all do a video. Mm-hmm. And. Often that's what the most useful thing is, is looking at a video and finding out when the page was really ready because all the numbers are lying. It didn't, you know, everything was async and none of the measurements really mattered and the page was ready in one second and there was just stuff going on for eight more seconds. You were loading resources for other pages and it wasn't really that bad, You're getting
2: into this concept of what the user perceives as finished or fast and what the measurement shows
3: correct and as developers trying to solve performance problems we're all about deferral and asynchronous behavior mm. to solve the problem let the user be free to let, let that that page be usable early and the measurement systems just haven't caught up with the fact that that's going on so the the you know, the, you, you implement these techniques that actually make the page more usable faster for the user but your measurements don't reflect it at all so, mm-hmm. you know, you've actually fixed the problem and the measurements don't tell you that you've fixed the problem whatsoever, which again, brings me back to the fact that measurement is one of the key problems in this, you know, this whole equation.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at telerik.com metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I can't let this talk go without bringing up your uh, amazing discovery about caching for one second. Oh, right. In the SQL Server, in Yeah, database. So, so
0: One of my favorite demos that I would do in talks for performance would be to run a uh, a load test on a simple page that uh, in your application is maybe your home page or something else that's getting hit more than once a second and you know if you don't have any kind of caching involved and it's hitting the database or something you know there's a certain limit that you'll hit with how many users per second it can or requests per second it can support uh, and if you turn on caching and you, and you kind of go to the business users and say is it okay if I cache this for 10 minutes and, and they say yeah okay it doesn't change that often um, you know you can get much much better performance but then the, the interesting thing is that if you take that 10-minute cache and drop it down to five seconds or even one second, one second. oftentimes you'll get exactly the same performance in terms of requests per second as you were getting with you know, a 10-minute cache. Um, and the users are seeing fresh data because you've removed the bottleneck off your database. And so maybe your database can only do 40 requests per second. As soon as you put on a one-second cache, your database is now doing one request per second, which it can do all day long. So there's no excuse for not doing a one-second cache. In many cases, but yeah, it, it yeah. will still be an issue if those users need dynamic content separate from one another. Yeah. Right, so if in each one more needs more than once in less than one second. Well, individualized, right? Yeah, like it, even if it's only for a second, I don't want to see your bank account info when I'm looking for my oh, bank oh, account Oh, of course. Info. Yeah. 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 But so specialized for, but for content. common content, certain common content, right? I, I really have to emphasize that that is
3: a great technique, not only for the performance, but for the simplicity. Often right. when people start using caching, they believe, uh, and I feel wrongly so that what they need is, some sort of concurrency mechanism that keeps their data, you know, keeps their, if the data changes, then they kick the thing out of the cache and they right. build this elaborate
2: system. But it, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's that just track, developer yeah. thinking. We like the logic of cache it till it changes. It right. seems logical.
3: Right. Right up until you have 10 machines <laughs> and, you know, it ch- you know it changes in the database or it changes on one of the machines. And now you've got to build a distributed system to, to get everything up to synchronize. And it's never exactly right. And right. now you're spending, you know, the, the project that was to cache for one second, which took five minutes now is a three month project of concurrent caches. Cause, yeah. or no, nope, you know what? I'm going to deploy memcache D on, you know, a, uh, on a, like it just, it just it goes on and yeah, on. It just
2: goes on and on. And yeah, Or and, you could have just done time based yeah, caching. And, and
3: time based caching actually works. Like a dream, and right. gives you ninety-nine percent of the benefit. So I, I I just really love that technique. That's a, a we call that micro caching. Yeah. and yeah. and it's a great great thing to do. And the the it only applies unfortunately uh, on pages that if you were to use WinDiff on the HTML are the same. Yep, for two different users right who look at that page. And how many pages do you look at today? Where you do a, a text difference on the pages and they're identical. .NET
1: Rocks. <coughs> All right. Yeah. Um,
3: but my, Our my, my, pages are like
0: every page of .NET every Rocks. Every page.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, many sites that yeah. we experience have, you know. User Kent Alsted up in the sure. top or, right, you know, right. the date or anything around yeah. that, you know, which, which causes, you know, forces you to a more sophisticated cache. Potentially.
0: Right? Or you can use Ajax loading or, or other techniques to make these little islands of dynamic content. As long as you don't care about like SEO and, and making those things visible to spiders, you know, then you can get around that. But, mm. but that has more of a performance cost too because now it's one more request before the page is ready or it has to go fetch, you know, Kent Alsted to yeah. put that in that spot because everything else is cached. So, I'll put a plug in for that technique if, if you do
3: that. So just be clear what it, what, you know, is being outlined here. I've got a page that has, is mostly static. It's got the date and my name. And instead of having that embedded in the HTML, I have a standard piece of, uh, Ajax that goes out and fetches the unique data from the server as a separate call. And thus the page is actually identical from one page view to the next and I can use my micro cache and that allows you which it's a little more complicated and you know a lot of performance turns out to be adding complexity to your app and that's yes. a, that's problems what
1: if it's all dynamic what if you're gmail you know and you're you're doing something where everything is dynamic on the page and you're not going to do any output caching no you're not right. going to do any output caching what's the next place you would look
3: uh, now you're in your business layer, you're right. doing as much caching with, you know, database logic cached in the middle tier in memory. Yeah. You know, that normally, or you're getting a memcached D or some, you know, a caching layer in front of you for, or in front of your database
1: or in, you know, that your app can unfortunately, use. Unfortunately, there's no silver bullet in that scenario. No,
3: uh, unfortunately, uh, performance, I mean, uh, it's a, it's a good business to be in, in one sense, because yeah. it's fraught with difficulty. Like most people just, you know, don't want to get into it because it's a deep topic right yeah
0: well and, and it's sort of like regular expressions what they say i mean like with with caching in particular it's one of the things it's easy to shoot yourself in the foot so you know if you have got a performance problem you want to solve it with caching you know now you've got two problems because you've <laughs> got to figure out how the caching works and it's it's easy to get wrong
2: well and yeah. i've seen cache misimplemented that still gave some performance benefit so they wanted to keep using it even though it wasn't actually working right
3: it's that's really common. So mm-hmm. I, I mean that the the ca- caching is probably the biggest performance benefit. We can get you the wrong data quickly. Yeah, yes. we can get you the wrong data quickly, yeah. and and actually, you know, we can make it really fast and wrong.
1: Yeah, fast you know, and wrong. Yeah, yeah,
3: we're we're good at fast oh, and yeah. wrong. Um, but it, you know, the wrong, ca- caching is fast. a great technique. Let's just the the one thing to point out that it's foolproof. If you can get the right data cached,
2: yeah, ultimately that's a great thing. Should we skip over to load testing for a bit because there's a I think we're hitting an interesting inflection point on the way we do this kind of testing, as you know. I, and I really see two species of it. And tell me, uh, I'll, I'll throw this at uh, you, Paul. That there's the A/B testing is the new version faster than the old version, and then there's the question that that real people ask, which is, will this website survive, you know, Black Friday? That you know, will it make it through the weekend? I don't know. How, do you? Deal with that question, and how do you tackle it?
4: I haven't had to tackle that particular question. I have friends who have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so within the testing community, there's a series of workshops called uh, the Workshop on Performance and Reliability, or Whopper for short.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. Um,
4: yes, with references back to the uh, good old War Games.
2: Yeah, uh, no movie. kidding.
4: And um, Performance, they, the only way to
2: win is not to play? Is that where <laughs> we're going?
4: Uh-oh. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, in each one of those workshops, we tackle a different aspect of performance and reliability. And um when it comes to load testing, so there's different interpretations in terms of what it means to different stakeholders. And I often ask for clarity. So one of the things you mentioned, the AB testing, Mm -hmm. I refer to that more as benchmark testing. Right. And there are things that you can, like tests you can automate that will tell you from build to build if the performance of certain things um, have deteriorated over time. And you can set alarms on that when the Differences become too great. Mm-hmm. And those are nice to just get automated and not have to think. I prefer to play more in the stress testing kind of environment, which is uh, a fun way of doing load testing to find what that breaking point is. Mm-hmm. And then you can scale back and say, okay, now how can we look to solve this problem in a different way?
2: Right. We're good up to here. Kind yes. of thing. The, the, uh, the, the way Boeing bends their airplane wings till they snap. Yes. Just to, to know that it's that's, strong enough.
0: That's how they do like maximum strength Tylenols. They give you enough to kill you and then they, <laughs> they back that back off, off a little, little bit. bit. Ah, <laughs> <nice>.
3: <laughs> I, I found that very, very expensive to do on large websites. I mean, a lot of websites that are going to survive Black Friday, where you know a lot of load test tools will do on each client maybe 5,000 u- virtual users, and you look at what your site's you know doing on Black Friday, and it you know you're also at 100,000 or some sites yeah. are way above that, a million concurrent users. And what you know, what we we use a device called Aspirant Avalanche, which is a hardware load generator, um, but what. Techniques. There's techniques available to you to how can you stress out your real backend, not your sample backend, but your or your or your staging backend, but your real backend, you know, or as close to that as you can, uh, with a huge load. And so there's all sorts of ways to go about that. Maybe you stress out your 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 database and just hammer it as though there's that many users, and then use 5,000 real users. So now I've got. My database, my middle tier, I've written programmatic code to make it think there's 100,000 users and I've used the load test tool for another 5,000. I take the metrics as as though my back end is under this enormous load and now I want to see what 5,000 users who are using a back end that thinks it has 100,000 users work like. And just to cut the cost because simulating a 100,000 virtual users is a very expensive proposition like hundreds of thousands of dollars expensive just for the software right right so um it's a tough problem to get yourself in a position and then then the question is if you know that's you, you normally have tremendously different gear in production and you're trying to extrapolate from my staging environment cuz running what i just said in production it's like it has to be an awfully slow day uh, and uh, you know for you to be able to get a test like that in because it's pretty dangerous right you're really slow. So, so how do you you know you now have to extrapolate from your staging environment and normally the hardware for a really big site that is even cares about black friday the production gear is worth You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and your, your little staging environment is one server with, and you're trying to make this sort of guess at, well, how does that all translate? So it's a, it's a pretty tough job, like that, you know, to really get an accurate, how do you know that you pass Black Friday? I, I know
0: when, when Black Friday passes most of the time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, one way you could get all that load is just you know annoy the hacker group Anonymous, and then let you know time that so that you're right. measuring at the right moment. That's what that's what GoDaddy does, I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Turned out good. they had some problems.
0: Their strategy didn't. The work. Uh, the other thing you can do specifically for that that is you know the selling point for all the cloud networks now is to not use your own hardware and just you know kind of rely on the ability of Azure, Amazon, or what have you to scale. But you can also use that uh, from a testing point of view if you need hundreds of thousands of concurrent requests, uh, a relatively cheap way to do that as opposed to setting up your own lab is to spin up a whole lot of VMs in one of these cloud providers and have them hammer on your system. And
1: that brings us to an interesting point, which is
0: how do you
1: make your cloud-based web app more performant? What do you do there? I mean, you're in the software and you, you you have database indexes and things like that, but you really can't throw more hardware at it, can you? I mean, you could turn on more servers,
0: but Yes, you can turn on more servers. And you yeah. can tune it, of course, right? I mean, if if you've got four loops that are doing stuff they shouldn't be or, or resources that you're loading before you need them, uh, most of the time, like, when I'm doing performance tuning, that's what I'm looking for is work that I don't need to be doing or work that I don't need to be doing yet. But is taking away that hardware layer actually a good constraint for you?
1: Like, does that f- focus you in on the software more?
0: Uh, I don't. I don't usually try and tune at the machine or hardware level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I try and get the fastest hardware I can get, mm-hmm. and I suppose I would. I'd be at the mercy of the IT department of whatever client I was working at anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that wouldn't bother me terribly. I'm sure others are more at that level. I so it's did, really I, not much difference. I yeah. did
2: see one tweet floating around for the for DevReach that said, "Cloud won't protect you from stupid." Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. True. So, because I mean, an awful lot of folks are saying these days, "Well, scaling and performance on websites is the problem. Or we have the cloud; just run it there, it'll be fine."
0: Right. Yeah. If you have a, a, a lousy performing application and you put it up in the cloud, you're going to have a lousy performing application in the cloud. And oh, by the way, you're going to get a big bill at the end of the month because you're going to try and overcompensate for it with a lot of resources, and you're right. paying by the resource now.
3: Yeah. I I, I would. Uh, I my answer to how would I scale the cloud. Well, first of all, most of the problem is in not, you know, not the actual web app returning fast enough. You know, most of the problem is in all the subordinate resources returning fast enough. So they're the same so, problems. Um, well, I would use a content delivery network, first of all. Right. You know, like I would, I would push all those resources onto other machines, get them, yep. you know, now I want my, my, the, my Azure code running my business logic and I, that all it's going to do is generate HTML. There's never going to be right. any other call coming to that. And then I'm going to start distributing that amongst many machines. And I'm probably going to have to go with some distributed data. Now, my problem is going to be at the database pretty soon or some singleton along the way, right? Right. And I'm going to try to, you know, distribute the singleton through caching or through, you know, geo, um, distributed, uh, databases. You know, there's, I, that now it it gets harder and harder as you go for sure. But, you know, that's the, the overall strategy is to start using that network. Um, and it, I find that it actually works like yeah. for the most it definitely it doesn't overcome stupid I don't yeah, want sure. I don't want to you know but you know you can you can take a fairly poor performing app uh, to the cloud and use a content delivery network and notice a tremendous amount of offload and a, and a tremendous amount of scale
1: and perhaps then, that would focus you on your, uh, you know, on your logic, on your database indexes, on those kinds of things.
3: Right now, now at least you're looking at the, you know, the load that you've got on your machine is your, your code, code your which, code. which at least now when you're profiling and you make a change and make your code 50% faster, you're going to realize it. You're not, you know, you're not yeah. dealing with network saturation right. or all these other problems that you know cloud your view of what's going on.
2: Surfing the web.
1: Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient.
2: Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight Data Viewing.
1: Yeah, it's a great product. I I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active
2: Reports from Component 1. Smarter Components for Smarter Developers.
0: It's probably worth noting, too, that there's a difference between performance and scalability. And oftentimes you have to sacrifice one to get the other. So um, in, in a cloud environment like Azure, for instance, a lot of the, the things that are in Azure, like SQL Azure or, or even the built-in table storage and things like that, the way that your app on your server on your VM Accesses those resources is typically through some HTTP pipeline that that Azure abstracts away from you. Mm. Now, if you were writing that yourself and you were posing that putting that stuff on your own server, you would almost certainly not go down that path. If you were just worried about performance, you'd put all that stuff in memory on your machine, yeah. and it would be much much faster. Like you know, we're still talking milliseconds, but it might be ten times faster yeah. than having to go out of process every time to talk to HTTP or, or to a SQL Azure database the fastest performing application you're going to get, assuming it has a database, is if you put it all on one machine. Right. Um, because now you don't have any latency hopping. But scaling that then becomes a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, there's a very strange and complex
3: relationship between scale and performance, right? Because if you really load up your machines with lots of users, all of a sudden it affects your performance, right? And yet, you know, just having lots of users, you know, if it was all static HTML, it wouldn't make any difference, right? The, the, you know, the, the two start to affect each other and, and they're, you know, they, they, it's like a Venn diagram where the circles are definitely, you know, there, there's some, the overlap there, but, uh, how you test and, and measure that is, you, again, It's you're getting into a, co- a complex problem where, you know, is my problem that the code just doesn't run fast enough if there was one user? Well, because that you know that's a performance problem. I'm on one box. Like now, I've got a pure performance problem. But as soon as I got more than one user, now I'm creeping into the scale. Oh, two. That's probably performance from three, five hundred. Oh, maybe ten thousand. Oh, well, now it might be a scaling problem, and you know my code might just be fast enough, and I have to have more distribution. Or so there's a there's a an interaction there which can't be avoided. Like you 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 have to you know sit back and, and and
0: architect for it. And I've, I've found that it's always much, much harder to scale from one instance of an application or server to two than to go from two to infinity. Yeah. Uh, getting, getting up to two is always the, the tougher thing. If you've written your application so that everything is tightly coupled to that one machine, you're going to have a hard time getting it on two. But once you can do it on two, you can do it on three and six and ten. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the
3: lesson for me there is always start at two.
2: Yes. Yeah, I don't even like two. I like three. You could lie to yourself with two. I've seen folks send up a second server, really for reliability, but not made the the two machines weren't configured the same. They just, they hodgepodge that second machine up. But three, it's just no longer manageable. You better do have sort of the discipline to manage those machines symmetrically.
3: Yeah, and the, the main thing is to make sure that you're ready to be in a farm. Like, if you're going to really take advantage of the scale of the cloud... You had better have it work on two, three, four. I mean, that, that's got to be part of your thinking from day one, or the cloud's not going to help you. You know, that, that, you know that, that scale is not
2: usable. Now you have many virtual instances you're paying by the hour that don't scale.
3: That's right. Nice. It's just going to be more expensive just, and not faster
2: still wonder about actually how we test all of this stuff well, like how we can actually get to a point where we know what's going to happen. So much of what you're describing is literally you're doing it on the fly in the field.
3: Well, I found an interesting phenomena happened in the last three years, I would say, last three or four years, and that is that testing we, we built all these content oriented applications which really every user had their own unique view of an application in fact they could choose different widgets sometimes they could even code their own widgets all this stuff going on and uh, it, it became really hard to know how the app was going to scale you could have a you know a, st- a set of components that scaled poorly you could have ones that were good and what I saw happen was people start using a B testing in live situations as their test. So instead of deciding that, oh, I'm I am a careful scientist. I can make sure that everything will be in a row, and it's going to work for the first at the first time, and it's going to work to this capacity. You know, it's like a surgeon. You know, it's it's you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's nice and clear. Well, another strategy is to say, well, I've got my next version. It addresses the issues that I had. I'm going to turn that live for two percent of my users and i'm going to use ab testing to ship all my and so instead of simulating anything i'm going to say well i've got my new code on one of my servers and the only one only people or the only situation that really tells me anything is live and i never get any confidence like in some apps i just don't care how much testing you do as soon as it's live new things happen and i just don't i don't believe i've gotten anywhere until i actually have live users so Now we see people using, and there's whole tools coming out, um, multivariate testing tools that allow you to release your code to 5% of your users, you watch your main metrics and you decide you're okay because the page view time is the same, the shopping cart abandonment rate is the same, you know, the user adoption rate is the same, and you decide, oh, my code is good and working right, my new release can go to 10% of the users now because none of my core metrics have changed on the users that are using the new code. Uh, risky, maybe. Um, but, you know, testing in this sort of artificial environment has its own set of risks as well. Sure. And the, the, the thing that a lot of people like about this strategy is that it takes less testers. Like, imagine what Facebook has to do. Paul you know. clearly needs a new job. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that there's functional testing, but this is a different type of testing, which, you know, when we're talking about capacity and scaling and load testing like this, you know, it's debatable how much you learn from your artificial environment. I guess that's the, that's the real point is that there there in some cases you just can't learn enough. And as a result you want to yeah the only thing you really get the confidence on. I know a lot of people that will not ship their new code without AB testing. They just don't believe that new release is really ready regardless of how much testing you've done. And and it, it depends on the app. You know, our application at StrangeLoop is intended to work on every single web page on the entire internet. Well, that takes a long time to test before you shift, right? So we, we have little choice but to make, you know, we have to make some balancing calls and using A B testing to get there is one of the most efficient ways in terms of cost to find out, you know, whether your app has got a problem or scales. And the, the main issue there is you need two components to make that type of approach work. Number one is an A/B test that works correctly. Uh, so that's just some, a router normally in, in front of your your uh, website that says that two percent of your traffic is going to your new app and your new servers. And a very, 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 very important second point, which is the ability to roll it back at an instant. You know, because you know the, the it's the only reason that type of approach is even acceptable in any way is if you can roll back.
2: Well, at least you're only knowing two percent of your customers.
3: Right. The, the, and, and the reality is, if you went with synthetic testing, you might be instead un- affecting 100% of them, right? right? Traditionally, what you do, instead of affecting 2%, is you test it in 1% of the total cases, right? And, but they're the most common cases, though, so we're feeling pretty good about it. Um, and then you roll out to 100% of your users. And, and, pray. And, pray. and pray and pray and pray right yeah it's release and pray it'll, it'll be a new it'll, it'll be a new deployment system we'll come out with um, you had a you comment have, about 10 minutes
1: ago yeah, <laughs> sorry it's like, oh, like this. well i
3: thought found this a really interesting new way to do things that
4: that I, and it it works very effectively so i think it's it's worth taking a look at there's um so Wow, there's like 14 questions based on what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I'm teaching testing to uh, individuals and to teams, I always make it clear that when we get into the space of performance testing, this is a whole different beast. And uh, using my background from science, I always say that, you know, performance testing is the most scientific of all of the others. Is that, yes, math is required. You know, there's a little, height bar limit. If you do not know statistics, turn back now. <laughs> um, and Abandon uh, all hope. And uh, so, yes, I find a lot of value of doing performance testing just in, on a staging server. As, you know, this is a controlled environment. Let's just push the limits of what we can do here. And uh, one of my favorite techniques to get some quick and cheap and easy performance data is to just run a training class. And what you have is you have a group of 10, 15, or maybe 20 people all Mm -hmm. hitting the same pages at the same time because they're working through the same exercises. And what they're doing is they're putting an artificial load on the system in a way that can simulate certain bounces in in traffic and loads in traffic that can give you some insightful information before you even put it on production. And uh, following that pattern, I was able to bring down a financial... Balanced load-balanced uh, system with just three testers. And each one of us had three VMs, and we were simulating nine users, and we just hit the app in certain places, and we actually brought down the database just mm. with the three people. And that was valuable information. Is that an access
1: database, by any chance? You no, know, it wasn't. <laughs> no,
4: no. <laughs> no, it was Microsoft. Because that was my experience with an access <laughs> database. Nice. Um, and so there are... Simple, cheap techniques that you can use just with a few people to gather some quick information before you go and test it on production. Having said that, that is still a controlled, artificial environment, and you're playing with you know thousands of data and and users as opposed to tens of or hundred thousands of users. Um, and there's definite value in doing that as well. I just I like to start with a controlled environment first. And do the math. A lot of math involved Get rid and of understanding this scalability. But it does give you a preview of, of what's to come. And oftentimes, we've eliminated 80% of the performance issues just by doing the focus tests. But it, they're focused, targeted tests, not random.
2: Well, I mean, in the end, the customer isn't random either. They clearly have a path. I guess the question is, how do we simulate what the customer would do well? How do you get that information and turn it into load tests? Have you guys seen the uh,
1: preemptive analytics tools? Mm-hmm. That they sort of attach post-compile to an assembly, and asynchronously, without putting any performance hit on your code in production, will sort of profile and measure and send that telemetry back to you, and so that you can really get a good view of what's going on in your app just by you know by using this stuff. Richard's been doing it in, the, in his demos on the road trip. Yeah,
3: and and that's available in production. That's what I really like right. about that is that. You know, for me, having that production data is so critical. What I want as a developer is I want to see what ha- when When Black Friday or something bad happened, I want to be able to go back and find out and drill into what actually happened, you know, and caused the problem if I could get some forensic evidence because normally recreating it, again, we're just wrong, right? Like right. we guess wrong as to what, what the problem was and we, you know, we can't drill in and get the right thing.
0: Going, going back a little bit to the SLA, I mean, one of the problems I often see uh, when I teach developers is premature optimization, yeah. where where they, they think <coughs> something might be <coughs> slow. <laughs> optimization. Or, and, you know, it, as developers, that's something we all like to do is try and make our code be as efficient as it can be. But like we already covered, Making things tuned for performance and it invariably means adding complexity to the application, and it's sort of like the the YAGNI you aren't going to need it principle here, where you know until you have a a customer requirement that says I need this level of performance under these conditions, and you know those aren't being met, you shouldn't be doing anything trying to performance optimize your app. You should be making it, you should be writing it in such a way that you could scale it later because that's going to be hard to do later. But otherwise, you should be writing the most you know simplest design that you can extend as possible. I think.
4: I have a colleague who gave me an example, a good example, uh, years ago that I've been using ever since, which was when he worked, he was a specialized performance tester, and when he worked with devs, and he said, okay, you have this code you want to write, which one do you want, the Ferrari or the school bus? Ferrari, yeah, let's make it fast. Hmm. Okay. okay, now this is what you've got to do. You have a classroom full of uh, great tens, and you want to get them across the city to attend an event at the museum. Use your Ferrari. And you realize, oh, it only takes like one, maybe two people at a time. That's a lot of calls. You know what? The school bus is the right vehicle there. Yes, it's slower, but it moves a lot more data. And so the idea of premature optimization is that you can't really know until you have a sense of the kind of data you have to move, how to optimize it. So don't make that choice. Don't look at the functional code and say, this is how I think it should go faster until you've actually seen what kind of load you're going to put on it.
0: Right, because most business applications, good enough might be that the page just has to respond in a second. Um, there, there are exceptions. I mean, Amazon and Google, you know, they they want performance to be zero, and as close as you can get asymptotically to zero, the, the better, because they know that every you know millisecond they shave off gives them more money.
2: I just you just said yeah, you know, you're only slow as a second, and like seconds pretty
0: fast, <laughs> you know. I know. I think most users would be quite happy if their yeah. page came back in a second. Now, if the ads pop in in like another half second or two, you know that's that's probably okay because they're not worrying about the ads. In my experience, I, I but, always it find the main when you have is where
2: the ads pop up first, and then the content comes up. Yeah, like those it. are annoying. That's carefully crafted code, though. Somebody's <laughs> my been personal
4: there. metric for uh, bad web page performance is if I'm loading it on my phone and my phone goes to sleep still loading before the page, the page is <laughs> finished loading. <laughs> I'm like, can't wake up and go back. it <laughs> <laughs> <Dude>, somewhere else. <laughs> I'm not going back to that site. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, I had a comment a little ways back where you were talking about three users and doing the simulated tests. Uh, one thing that we've done, which has been helpful is taking three or four of your most popular flows, putting those into your load test tool and generating 300, 405, whatever number of the maximum number of users that your load, your affordable load test tool will generate. And then running your training class. So now you've got this simulated load, which is not testing every case anymore, but the most common ones. And, and so it's simulating the most common load and the most common queries. And now your real users are going to go and do real jobs that might inc- incorporate many more flows. But they're going to find these bottlenecks because now everything's under stress. And if there is some long-running query that's affected by user management or something else, you will all of a sudden discover it. So it's a way to maximize your test resources and you kind of, it's the marrying of the manual and automated methods where you don't take near as long to write those load tests because they don't have to be near as comprehensive and you let the, you know, the people do the comprehensive functional tests. And if they run into places where it just doesn't work anymore,
4: you know, now you've actually found something, which is really you know, oh, absolutely! Profiling is a critical part of doing good performance testing, and uh, there's different ways to collect that. If you have a business specialist or someone who understands the target uh, users of the system, then just profile what their common use case scenarios are, and then you automate that. Get that into the system. You can start to balance and offload based on peak periods of the day. Uh, you know, 9 a.m. on Eastern time. This is the load. You know, at noon. The West Coast of uh, North America comes online and then it increases the load. So you can do the math and work out how those profiles interact with each other to predict certain patterns. And um, I find that the 80-20 rule, you sort of mentioned the Pareto uh, principle, it comes up quite often. And one of the rules of thumb or heuristics that I use is you're only going to get about 80%... Um, 80% of your users will use about twenty percent of the functionality. So I like to automate that twenty percent of the pathways through the system and have that running under load. And then we have us as the humans going through the system and doing more of the little obscure paths that are also interesting and having yeah. the the instrumentation returning meaningful data to us to analyze later.
3: So to me that's the
4: most effective
3: simulated
4: or or you know yes,
1: uh, you know, not real. Low test yes. s- situation, that's the best you can do. Guys, I think we're going to have to call that a show because we're just oh. about out of time. <laughs> so let's have a big hand for our panel. Hey, we'll see you next time on Rock. Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, CoralSight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. CoralSight.com.